1: 3 of the Infected trilogy written by number 1 New York Times best-selling novelist Scott Sigler performed by Phil Giganti Pandemic is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com/pandemic. Chapter 57 Port Cooper and Jose worked to tie the Mary Ellen Moffat to the Long Pier. Jeff was in the pilot house, managing the fine maneuvering that brought the ship into place. Waiting at their slip were three vehicles, a white van, a long black limo, and a pickup truck. Four Chinese men stood outside the white van. They wore jeans and sweatshirts, very nondescript, but Cooper wouldn't have wanted to bump into any of them in a bar. Hands in pockets, shoulders shrugged against the cold, they clearly hadn't understood that the temperature at the docks was usually the same as the temperature out on the water. Maybe they were here to help Steve and Beau Pan. The pickup truck's doors opened, and two men, properly dressed against the cold in work jackets and insulated pants, stepped out. They had the burly look of dock workers. They approached the Mary Ellen. Cooper had no idea who these men were either. He noticed that when the dock workers came forward, the Chinese men shrank back just a little bit. The limo was the most interesting of all. A man in a chauffeur's suit, the driver, obviously, stood in front of it, a drop-dead gorgeous woman on each arm. The women were laughing and smiling, but also shivering beneath thick fur coats. Past the hem of their coats, Cooper saw sparkly dresses and high heels. The hanging bumpers on the Mary Ellen's port side ground against the seawall. Cooper was about to greet the two approaching men when a voice called out from behind him. Wait! He turned to see a bundled-up Steve Stanton rushing out of the cabin door. Steve ran across the deck, two overstuffed laptop bags strung around his shoulders. And not far behind Steve, Cooper saw Jeff descending from the bridge. Steve slid to a stop, pointed at the dock workers. I hired these men, he said in a rush. And a bonus for you, he pointed to the limo. Or maybe at the girls. Cooper wasn't sure. A bonus? Steve nodded hard. Yes, for such a good job. I have two nights at the Trump Tower for everyone. All paid for. The limo will take us there. Jeff joined them, a wide smile on his face. Stop the presses, he said. Did I hear you say you bought us two nights at the Trump Tower and a limo ride with some girlies? Steve nodded furiously. He seemed overly hyped up. Stressed, maybe? His eyes kept darting to the cabin door. Was he waiting for Pan? My way of saying thanks, he said. And maybe we can all get a beer after we check in? Cooper frowned. You're there, too? Cooper just wanted to be rid of the guy who bothered Jeff so much. Although at the moment, Jeff couldn't stop smiling, couldn't quit looking at the girls. Again, Steve's eyes flicked to the door. He looked at Cooper, forced a smile. I need a break, too, Steve said. If I can hang out with you guys tonight, I'll pay for one more day at our agreed rate. I really think I should uh, be around you for a while. Cooper started to say no. He'd had his fill of Steve Stanton and this weird job. But Jeff put an arm around Steve's shoulders and gave the smaller man a friendly, solid shake. Hell yes, you can hang out with us, Jeff said. "'Thanks for the gift, Steve. We appreciate it. Coop and I will show you all the good spots in town, won't we, Coop?' Hours earlier, Jeff had wanted to get as far away from Steve Stanton as possible, and now he wanted to be the kid's best friend. A couple of nights in a five-star hotel and a limo loaded with some high-class ladies could have that effect. "'Sure,' Cooper said. Cooper pointed up to the two dock workers, who were standing at the edge of the pier, waiting for instructions. Steve also hired these guys to help us unload. Jeff slapped Steve's back, then invited the dock workers aboard. He led them to the crane and gave them the rundown on how they'd offload Steve's crates. Steve glanced to the cabin door again, and this time he froze. Cooper looked as well. Pan was quickly approaching, a duffel bag over his shoulder. Inside of it, Cooper knew was the case recovered from the lake bottom. Beaupin looked like he was trying to control his temper. Steve, the old man said. What is going on? Steve took a step away. I hired help for the unloading, he said. Beaupin looked to the dock, saw the white van, pointed at it. We have help. They're not Union, Steve said. We have to hire union labor in Chicago, right, Cooper? Cooper glanced at the Chinese men near the white van. They were edging closer, like they wanted to approach, but were waiting for instructions. Beau Pan looked furious. Cooper thought of pointing out that they could have unloaded themselves and therefore didn't need to hire help, union or otherwise. But Steve looked more than on edge. He looked afraid. Steve was the one in charge, wasn't he? Or had this all been some kind of strange sham all along? Was Beau Pan the one who called the shots? And if so, just how much trouble was Steve in? Steve is right, Cooper said, following an instant instinct to protect the kid. If you hire labor to unload, Beau Pan, they've got to be union. This is Chicago, my friend. Beau Pan's bony hands clutched into fists. Anger smoldered in his wrinkled eyes. He looked to the dock. I see, he said. And the limousine? And those women standing there watching us? Are they Union too? Steve gave us a bonus, Cooper said. In fact, Mr. Stanton, why don't you wait in the limo? We'll be offloaded in just a moment. Steve shook his head. Ah, uh, I'd rather stay on the ship with you and Jeff until everything is finished." That line made Beau Pan even angrier. He coughed up a wad of phlegm, spat it onto the deck, then started climbing out of the slightly moving boat onto the pier. Two of the Chinese men ran over to help him. One took the duffel bag. The man handled the bag delicately, reverently. Beau Pan and the men got in the van, which quietly drove down the dock toward the pier gate. Cooper turned to Steve. Want to tell me what that was all about? Steve shook his head. No, I do not. The kid looked like he might puke at any moment. He reached into his coat pocket, pulled out a banded stack of hundred dollar bills, and handed it to Cooper. Another part of your bonus. Cooper looked at it, dumbfounded. Another mad stack. Another ten grand, just like that. Steve started climbing out of the boat. Cooper had to help him, thanks to two computer bags, one of which was stuffed with two laptops. As Steve walked to the limo, Cooper wondered what had just happened. He'd tried to get it out of Steve later, if indeed Steve was really going to hang out. Cooper turned, waved to Jose. The Filipino came running over. Yes, Big surprise, Cooper said. We're all staying at the Trump Tower for the next two nights. All free, big guy. Jose's smile faded. A tower? A hotel, Cooper said. Big one. Fancy as hell from what I hear. Steve paid for it. We even get a limo ride. He nodded toward the long black car, the shivering girls. Jose coughed, then sneezed. He wiped his nose with the back of his hand. Bless you, Cooper said. You okay? Jose shrugged. Coming down with something. I think I'll just go home. I miss my family. Cooper wanted to talk him into coming, but could see there was no point. Jose missed his family, true, but he was also always paranoid of anything that involved giving ID or being around lots of strangers. The man was so hardworking, so at home on the boat, it was easy to forget that once on land, he didn't have the same rights and privileges that Cooper and Jeff enjoyed. Okay, Cooper said. You need a ride anywhere? Jose shook his head. My cousin is coming to get me. It's just a two-hour drive to Benin Harbor. No problem. He coughed again, much harder this time. His eyes watered. Damn, dude, Cooper said. Maybe you should swing by a hospital and get that checked out. Jose cleared his throat, shook his head, and smiled. He thought Cooper was joking. Cooper felt like an idiot for the second time in as many minutes. Jose was as afraid of hospitals as he was of hotels. He probably feared that a trip to the hospital might turn into a visit with the INS. A ridiculous fear, Cooper knew. But then again, he never had to deal with such concerns. Cooper peeled off twenty one-hundred-dollar bills from the stack, handed them to Jose. Tell your cousin not to drive like a goddamn illegal, will you? Jose's face lit up in surprise. He put the money in his pocket. Sometimes, F.A. Cooper, you're a good guy. For a racist asshole, I mean. Thank you. You're welcome, Cooper said. Great work. Now help get Steve's crap off the boat, okay? Jose jogged over to join Jeff and the two dock workers who were already unloading Steve's crate. A tickle flared up in Cooper's windpipe a tickle that quickly turned into a small cough. He cleared his throat, felt a little scratchy. Well, he wouldn't let a little cold stop him from having one grade A bitch of a good time. Windy City, here we come.
0: As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. Grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash Realm, all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M. Now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm.
1: Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. CHAPTER 58. FREQUENT FLYERS Pan put a bottle of water in a tin of sucretes on the counter. The cashier grabbed it, ran it across the scanner, spoke to him without looking up. Hello, sir, she said. How are you today? Her name tag said, Mara. She held out her hand. That will be seven fifty five. Beau 55 Beaupin adjusted the strap of his carry-on bag so he could get at his wallet. Then handed over the money, when he did, his hand touched hers. Neutrophils detected contact, reversed their grip, letting go of Bo Pan and clinging to Mata instead. In two days, she would kill her husband by driving the point of a clothes iron into the back of his skull. Would you like a bag, sir? Bo Pan shook his head. No, thank you. I am fine. She offered him his change. Thank you for shopping at Hudson News. He took his money, moved to the magazine rack. Pan pretended to look at the covers showing bright cars, men with too much muscle, or women showing too much skin. Americans certainly loved big breasts. He tried hard to stay calm. His contact was late. His plane boarded in ten minutes. What if Ling didn't show? He unwrapped a sucré and popped it into his mouth. Cherry flavor. He liked that. His throat was scratchy, and it felt like he had a fever coming on. Pan heard the rattling of wheels rolling along the concourse's tile floor. He looked up just as Ling rolled a dolly into Hudson News. The dolly held five blue plastic trays, each loaded with soft drinks. Ling met Pan's eyes, but didn't acknowledge him in any way. Ling rolled his dolly of drinks toward the glass refrigerator. Bopin turned quickly to follow. When he did, he bumped into Paulette Duchovny from Minneapolis. Bopin's hand came up immediately, reactively touching Paulette's bare forearm. Oh, he said, sorry, sorry. Three hours from that moment, Paulette would be back in Minneapolis. Two days after that, she would infect seven other people, including her son, Mark, and her daughter, Cindy. Mark and Cindy would lock up the house and stand guard as Paulette transformed into something that was not fully human. Before the sun set on the fourth day, Paulette Duchovny would do what a voice in her head told her to do. She would murder a family of five in their home, ending the slaughter by gutting a three-month-old baby. Paulette smiled at Beaupin. That's okay, no problem. He nodded again, then walked to the refrigerator. Ling was already there, the glass door pinned open by his dolly. He was pulling bottles of Coke out of the plastic bins, then reaching into the refrigerator to place them behind the bottles that were already there. Ling saw Pan, then took a step back and gestured at the open refrigerator. Go ahead, sir. Thank you, Pan said. He grabbed a Coke. Oh, Ling said, then reached down to the floor and picked up a black fanny pack. The pack's pouch looked like it held something cylindrical, perhaps about the size of a travel mug. He offered it to Beau Pan. Hey, you dropped this. Beau Pan's heart hammered in his chest. It couldn't be this easy to get an object past the TSA. It simply could not. The CIA was here, somewhere. They were watching, waiting for him to take it. They would start shooting at any moment. Beau Pan took the fanny pack. As he did, his left pinky touched Ling's right thumb. In three days Ling would be dead, a leaking bag of fluid slowly sloughing off of a prone skeleton. The infection would not properly work with his particular physiology, and he would slowly dissolve in a chain reaction of apoptosis. But before he died, and after he became contagious, Ling would stock a total of twenty-two airport refrigerators. He would leave mutated neutrophils on over three hundred bottles, neutrophils that would be nicely refrigerated until a hand touched them, or a pair of lips brushed against them. Bopin turned and walked away, waiting to hear screams of, Get down on the floor! But all he heard were the normal sounds of an airport. He walked to his gate just as his group was boarding. The last thing Bopan did before getting on the plane was to hand his ticket to Enrique Calderon, who lived in the Boystown area of Chicago. In three days, Enrique would grab a kitchen knife and chase his lover through their apartment building, slashing him on the shoulder, the forearm, and the temple. His lover would run, leaving a long trail of blood, before finding a fire axe, which he would swing at Enrique's stomach, burying the blade in Enrique's ribs just under his left arm. Enrique would bleed to death a few feet away from his building's laundry room. As for the people on flight 245, some of them would prove to be unlucky as well. By the end of the two-hour flight to Newark, seven of them would have touched a surface previously touched by Bopin. His neutrophils would already have penetrated their new host's skin, would already be cutting open stem cells, rewriting DNA, and starting the cycle anew. Two of those people were on their way home to New York City. They would take the PATH train to Penn Station, then get on the F train, one of them headed to the Upper East Side and the other to Queens. Another passenger would transfer to a flight to North Carolina. Another would board an LL flight to Morocco. A fifth was catching a red-eye to London. The final two, like Bopin, were heading to Beijing. He took his seat. Almost giddy with success, he wore Ling's fanny pack in the front. The pack would never be out of his sight or his touch. After 22 years in America, he was finally going home. In 14 hours he would land as a national hero. Unfortunately for Bo Pan, his body would not be able to handle the infection's final transformation changes. He would not become one of the converted. The process was already weakening an artery in his right temple creating an aneurysm. In fourteen hours, yes, he would land as a hero of the people. In fifteen hours, that artery in his head would rupture, causing a stroke. He would die of a hemorrhage. Bopin's infection, however, would live on. Live on in the most densely populated nation on the planet. Chapter 59 That Toddlin' Town Steve Stanton didn't know how to handle his hurricane of emotions. Beau Pan would have killed Jeff, Cooper, and Jose, probably with the help of those men at the dock. That alone felt terrifying. Add to that Steve's guilt over the death of the Navy Diver. Steve's creation killed the man, killed a soldier who wanted nothing more than to serve his country, just like Steve had wanted to do, which in turn stirred up confusion. Just which country was Steve's anyway? He'd grown up American. He'd never even been to China. How could he count that distant nation as his home? Fear, guilt, confusion, and a final emotion that, in contrast, made the others all the more intense. Happiness. He was out having a blast with Jeff Brockman and Cooper Mitchell. Two men who in their younger days probably picked on and ridiculed guys like Steve. They had no idea that he'd save their lives, and Jose's as well. The five unexpected witnesses Steve hired, the two girls, their driver, and the two dock workers, had forced Bo Pan to leave the Moffat's crew alive. By now, Bo Pan was on a plane to New York, then London, and finally Beijing. He would probably never come back. Why would his bosses take the chance that Bo Pan could make a mistake, be picked up and interrogated, when they could just keep him in China and know his secrets would forever stay safe? And if Bopin's bosses sent Steve another handler, well, Steve was the only one who could maintain and operate the platypus, which meant he was probably safe. As for Cooper and Jeff, now that Bopin had escaped the country with his prize in hand, Steve couldn't think of a logical reason why someone would want them dead. Still, Steve knew he would spend the rest of his life wondering if someone would come for him, and his parents maybe. Someone who would want to tie up loose ends and silence anyone who knew anything. Cooper and Jeff had picked up on Steve's troubled thoughts and applied what seemed to be their cure-all for any affliction, drinking. The three of them sat in a booth at Monk's Pub. This was their third stop of the night. Steve was already drunk. They had had old-style beer at a dive bar called Marie's Riptide Lounge, then moved on to far more fancy trappings and expensive scotch at Coke d'Or and finally landed at Monk's. Steve had lost track of the drinks he'd consumed. Three beers? Or was it four? And those two shots? Had they contained more than the standard one and a half ounces of liquor? Based on the way his head was swimming, it seemed like they had. Monk's was packed. Music blared. People laughed, shouted to be heard over the high level of noise. Steve wondered if it was loud enough to damage his hearing. One night wouldn't do that much damage, he figured. Besides, tonight he wasn't some nerd hanging out with his parents and family at the restaurant. He was partying. And the girls so many girls black and white and Asian and Hispanic wearing jeans and tight sweaters or more revealing outfits they'd hidden under heavy winter coats. Steve glanced over to the bar to a blonde girl with glasses he'd been staring at earlier. She was staring back at him. She smiled. Jeff smacked Steve in the arm. "'Too bad about those limo ladies, my friend,' Jeff said. He wore jeans, a black belt, and a black ACDC concert T-shirt that showed off his lean biceps and muscle-packed forearms. "'I can't believe you hired actual models instead of escorts. I mean, they were escorts, sure, but not escort escorts.' A tap on his other arm, Cooper. He also wore jeans." but with a gray sweater that made him look like a college professor. Jeff is a sad panda because she didn't hire hookers, Cooper said. I'm not sad, Jeff said. Just saying a little limo shag is never a bad thing. Hey, Steve-o, you going to pick out something to eat or what? We need to get some food in you or you're going to pass out on us, and there's way more drinking to be done. Steve picked up the menu sitting on the table in front of him. He tried to concentrate on it, but it blurred in and out of focus. Maybe a burger, he said. Cooper, are you having a burger? Jeff laughed. (laughs) A burger? For that hippie, maybe there's some grass in here for him to graze on. Steve looked at Cooper. Cooper shrugged. I'm a vegetarian, he said. Jeff can't quite comprehend why anyone wouldn't want to consume the flesh of animals raised as captives and then butchered, screaming in agony. Jeff crossed his arms, affected a look of utter disgust. Dead animals are God's gift to man. Beef is delicious. Bacon tastes good. Pork chops taste good. The waitress appeared, carrying three beers. You boys ready to order? Cooper closed his menu. Roasted vegetable salad, please. Cheeseburger, Jeff said. Make it moo. Steve stared at his menu, but the words again fuzzed to the point where he couldn't read them. The menu suddenly flew from his hands. Jeff had yanked it away and closed it. Standin' enough rinky-dinking around, he said. Jeff turned to the waitress. My man here is having a cheeseburger medium. And may I say, your eyes absolutely sparkle in this light. The waitress winked. Smooth talker. Won't get you out of giving me an obnoxious tip. Don't worry, Jeff said. My tip is always oversized. The waitress shook her head, but she had to hold back a laugh. If Steve had said a line like that, he would have been slapped. Not that he could ever actually say something like that in the first place. The waitress walked off. Jeff pointed to Steve's glass. Get at that beer, bitch. It ain't gonna drink itself. Cooper rolled his eyes. By bitch, he means Mr. Stanton. Here, Jeff said, picking up his glass. Let me show you how a real man does it. He tipped the glass back and drank the whole thing in one pull. He set it down hard enough on the table to make the other drink slosh a little. He belched. Boom! Jeff pointed at Cooper's mug. Coop, get to gettin'. You too, Steve-o, knock it back. Steve glanced to the bar, to the girl, saw that she was still watching, still smiling. He didn't want the girl to think he was a wimp, so he lifted the glass. I have to drink the whole thing? Cooper shook his head. No, you don't. He shot Jeff a stern look. This isn't a frat party, right, Jeff? Fine drinky drinky. Jeff said. What's the matter, Steve? Are you a pa-pa-pa-pussy? Pu- 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 Steve looked at the full glass of beer in his hand. If Jeff had done it, then so could he. He tipped the glass back. He swallowed once, twice. Then his throat got so cold, but he kept swallowing. Jeff screamed, Go! 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 As Steve drained the glass and set it on the table. Jeff raised his arms high. Winner! Cooper rolled his eyes again, but clapped lightly. You two can hang out all night. Clearly you've got the same testosterone problem. Jeff stood. Boys, don't go anywhere. He walked to the bar, leaving Steve and Cooper alone. So, Steve, Cooper said, you having a good time? Steve nodded. His head felt all heavy and loose. Yes, uh, but I think I may have drunk too much. I can see that. I'll make sure you get back to the hotel safe. Now, you want to tell me what was going on back on the Mary Ellen? Steve felt the elation drain from his body. Why did Cooper have to bring that up now? Cooper leaned across the table. If Bopin is messing with you, maybe Jeff and I can help. He looked so honest, so open. Steve thought about telling him the whole story, right there and then. And then Jeff returned, the girl with glasses at his side. Jeff slid in next to Cooper. The girl with glasses sat down next to Steve. Boys, meet Becky, Jeff said. Becky just so happens to be one of my favorite names. Cooper seemed to forget all about the discussion. He looked hungrily at Becky. A lovely name to accompany a lovely face, he said. Becky laughed, covering her mouth with her hand. Her blonde hair bounced and swayed. Jeff and Cooper seemed so at ease with girls, so natural, like they'd done this a thousand times. Jeff reached across the table and grabbed Steve's shoulder. Steve, Becky and I have a bet, he said. She bet me that you can't drink a shot of Jaeger. Cooper groaned. Ah, Jesus, Jeff, what are you trying to do, kill our boss? Jeff slapped the table. She didn't think our boss could drink his shot. I said, Becky, you are a dirty whore with the diseased snatch of a smelly pirate hooker. Steve's jaw dropped, but Becky laughed even harder. She looked at Steve, smiled a sexy smile. They were calling him boss for Becky's benefit. To make him seem more important in her eyes? The beautiful girl put her elbows on the table, leaned closer. Her shoulder touched Steve's. "'You guys are way older than he is,' she said. "'Are you sure he's your rich boss, or are you running a line on me?' Cooper put his hand on his chest. "'Madam, you offend me. I assure you Mr. Stanton has more money than we could count in a week, maybe even two weeks.' It's just that much. Not only is he smart, well-off, insanely good-looking, staying at the Trump Tower because he's fancy and fine, but he's also an adventurer. We're back from several days at sea. Steve held up a finger. It was a lake. Several days at lake, Cooper said. Right you are, boss. The waitress returned, plunked down four shot glasses filled with black liquid. Those were definitely more than one and a half ounces. Becky smiled at Steve. The bet is that if you can drink one of these, I have to kiss you. Steve stared. He swallowed. And if I can't? Becky leaned even closer. Then you have to kiss me. Yes, this was really happening. Drunk or not, this was really happening. Steve grabbed the glass, tilted his head back, and poured it all in. His mouth rebelled almost instantly. How awful! It tasted like moldy licorice. It burned going down. He felt his stomach roil, but he wasn't going to throw up in front of the prettiest girl he'd ever spoken to. He turned the glass over and set it on the table, the awful taste still clinging to the inside of his mouth and his nose as well. Becky put her hand on his chest, pushed him lightly until his back pressed against the booth seat. She turned to her right, then raised slightly and slid backward into Steve's lap. You win, she said. She kissed him, slow and warm. Steve's body seemed to melt. Becky's hand held the back of his head as her tongue slid into his mouth. He felt himself grow hard instantly, knew that she felt it too, and she didn't move away. He heard Jeff screaming something supportive yet obscene, but Steve's world narrowed to the kiss, to the girl. This was the greatest night ever. As Steve, Cooper, and Jeff partied, they couldn't know what was happening to their bodies. Jeff, in particular, couldn't know of the microscopic, amoeba-like organisms on his palms, his fingertips. He couldn't know that on everything he touched, and every one he touched, he left these moving vectors of disease. A waitress picked up a glass. Contact. The bartender put his hand on the bar where Jeff had done the same only moments earlier. Contact. A drunk man bumped into Jeff. Then they shook hands to make sure no one was upset. Contact. Jeff made out with a woman who had put in a long day at the office and just needed to blow off some steam. Contact. That night, two dozen people would leave the bar with crawlers already burrowing under their skin, already seeking out stem cells, already changing them into something else. You have been listening to Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment.
0: Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities, who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Seven ribs are completely fused. And you have no idea where this came from? No. She was sent here anonymously. Mm Mm-mm. Not she. They, maybe? Wait. I've never seen anything like this.